Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. Hello, hello. Greetings far and wide. Good to be with you again on the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm Nathan. A big shout out to all of you in Victoria who have just gone back into a month of lockdown. I'm one of them. I'm with you <laughs> and it's exhausting. I felt the whiplash for sure. And I'm also already seeing how quickly my life sped up in the past few weeks that restrictions were being lifted. So another lesson in slowing down, treading lightly, and staying local. Now, a man who knows all about that is Peter McFadgian from Froome. He's our guest on the podcast today, chatting with Barry as part of our localising campaign at Dumbo Feather. If you haven't already, get your hands on our latest issue of the magazine, all about revitalising our local communities. Peter has an incredible story of taking over his local town council with a group of independents more than a decade ago. Together they pioneered a new kind of politics built on real democracy and introduced a range of measures to strengthen the local economy and address climate change. We're excited to be hosting Peter as part of our next economy series at Small Giants Academy. So if you like what you hear, be sure to head to the Small Giants website for all the information on his upcoming events. I just have to start with what I just read just before uh, we picked up this call, which was a quote from from you, I think, it might be an XR quote, on your new initiative that we'll talk about. But it, the quote is, politics is a cartel system in hoc to the growth economy. It wasn't me, but it's a good quote. It's a no, good sure quote. It. Yeah, yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love it so much and there's so much for us to talk about. But maybe maybe you can tell me how you feel about that quote. So everything's in that really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in the sense of starting with what's politics. I mean, because I guess that means or the implication of that is, is party politics and the politics that runs us, the politics that, uh, the, that most, is what most people think politics is, you know, when you elect somebody and then they represent you. And for me, politics is, is, is much more about individuals. It's about, it's about individuals taking decisions about their lives, people having discussions. It's all the things that we've seen, certainly in Britain, over the last three months or whatever it's been, two months of lockdown, in which individuals in their communities have come together to make decisions. And actually, we've seen time and time again where it's been small groups of people who have taken the actions to make sure that elderly people who they didn't even know were there are getting food, that 
you know, people who were living on the streets have been accommodated in, in hotels for the last couple of months. It's those sorts of things. So for me, that's what, what politics is all about. And um, I mean, I'm happy to talk to you about the other politics, the capital P, um, you know, party politics. But I don't know why in a way, because, because I'd rather just stop talking about it because it's such a disaster. I mean, it's such an unmitigated failure to do virtually anything. It's entirely unnuanced, for starters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the whole of what we, we've done in Froome really was to kind of go, look, that's just never going to work for us. If we don't do it, it's not going to happen. So, so we're going to have to, to run things ourselves and, and to take back power in that way. But it's not taking back power in a, in a revolutionary sense of, of um, you know, guns or... It's not... It's not trying to take over the system because the system's completely fucked in my, um, you know, in my view. And, and actually, we've never had democracy anyway. So if we live in this completely false paradigm of trying to get ourselves into a system or trying to take power in a system, which has never worked uh, for anyone. It didn't even work for the Greeks who invented it. I mean, it did for a few of them, but not for the women or the slaves. And there's never been anything since. So for me, yeah, absolutely, that, that quote sums it up. But because the politics with the capital P of party politics is all about the rich getting richer, but it always has been. Um, and power, if you were to separate the two, power and yeah. they're sort of the, that's the dance. And, and the second part of the quote I love, in hock to the growth economy, I think that what that then talks about, which we'll talk about with your work with Froome, what is that even in service to? that we ask the question, what are we organising around to be in service towards? And one of the things that uh, COVID has distilled for us is what is essential to life mm. and then what yeah. is essential to a meaningful life. So maybe that's the, the perfect segue for uh, you uh, to Tell us a bit about Froome for those who haven't listened to the podcast as avidly as I have and done the reading. <laughs> What is Froome? You were the mayor of Froome, but there is a story that began on a fateful night in a pub. Can you take us through that sort of origin story? <laughs> the origin story, yeah. <laughs> of, um, so that's the origin story of independence of, of Froome. <clears throat> but just to give you a tiny bit of pre-context of that in the sense of what is Froome, so it, it's, a, it's a market town in the southwest of England. And I say market town, um, but in a sense, it's no longer a market town. It's here because we're in the middle of a rural area. And it was a forest with water in it. So that's why the original setting was here. And there's a particularly active river that had a whole series of mills and power on it. So Froome's wealth came from the power of the river. Mm. So first into wool mills with cheap on Salisbury Plain. So wool came to Froome and was milled here. And then later iron. And then later a series of other factories. So this was a significant town. But as all of those things faded out, it, it contracted and became, like a number of others, a relatively small 25,000, 30,000 um, people market town with a cattle and, and livestock market that was the centre of life. And then about 15, 20 years ago, the cattle market moved out because Froome's actually also medieval. So the, the streets are too small to have big lorries and so on. So physically, it became impossible to retain that. The market moved out at much the same time as the last of those big factories closed. And Froome descended into about 10 years of, of a lot of the shops being shut 
higher unemployment than anywhere else, a lot of old buildings that were run down. But then interestingly, and of course this happens all over the place, that meant that things are cheap. Properties cheap, houses are cheap, big buildings are cheap. And we're quite near to Bath, which is a national or international heritage site, to Bristol that has a thriving economy of its own. So suddenly there's a lot of new people who start coming and with that, a new energy. And it's into that sort of ecology that a group of us met in a pub. So the beginning of the new politics, if you like, falls into uh, something which is already happening. There are new people coming into Froome who are going, I really like this place and I want to make things happen and I want my children to be brought up here. So there's a new energy going on. And the politics bit started because a bunch of us, with only one person who had experience of politics, a fine man called Mel Asher, who'd run a council before. So he'd had the job of being a chief executive of a council. None of us had been elected to anything. But we came from different places, I suppose, and realized that the way that the town was being run, that the town council was incredibly unambitious. And that was its main feature. And part of that lack of ambition was people were elected through their political parties. And so then they fought with each other in national party ideology rather than looking at what the town needed. And so a group of us came together kind of, well, not exactly moaning about that, but commenting on that really and feeling things could be better. For me, I'd come from the transition town um, to that meeting, if you like, to that meeting in the pub. And in a transition role, I'd been to the council and said, tell me about what you're doing about climate change and um, peak oil and you know these, these massive issues which are going to cause us huge challenges in the future. Just to clarify, transition towns are about moving communities to a more sustainable future. Correct. At that time, particularly, they were looking to get climate change and peak oil onto the agenda. But yes, it's an international movement. Transition town movement is all over the world with groups of people in towns looking to make their communities more sustainable and more resilient. So incidentally, they've had a really, really interesting role within the pandemic, those communities. And Rob Hopkins, who started that movement, has written some fantastic stuff recently about that. And there's a great blog of his at the moment, uh, picking up examples of all over the world of where transition towns have played key roles in in bringing people in their communities together to cope uh, better. Um, And are looking at how to move on now. So I came from that. And that movement, which I'd started in Froome um, about the same time as Rob started the transition town movement. And the town council's answer was, we've got a park. And that was it. It's like, we're not prepared to discuss anything else. We run the park. And legally, that's all they have to do. Actually, they don't even have to do that. Legally, the town council has to provide allotments, small community gardens, and have one meeting a year. That's it. And many of the 10,000 local councils in Britain, that is all they do. They are incredibly unambitious. So I came to that meeting going, look, this is ridiculous. We need to do better. A couple of other people knew two things that were key to our taking power and and wanting to um, get involved. One was austerity. So for the last 10 years, until recently, Britain has lived in a political environment where the centre has said, um, we need to really cut down on our, our spending massively. And the brunt of that saving has to be at a local level. So huge cut in grants, masses of services lost in the regions. So austerity is going to come. That's going to be a huge impact on us. And also at that time, we had um, a prime minister called David Cameron, who said, I'm going to 
run something called localism. I'm going to I'm going to give loads more power to local people. He said, um, I'm going to take the power from the political elite and give it to the man and woman in the street. So we knew that there was going to be legislation that was going to give more power locally. We knew austerity was going to come and really hit us. And as I was saying before, if, if we don't do it, no one else will. And we felt that this was a hugely unambitious council that had got itself in a mess, really, by being party political. So we thought we'd just let people know that initially. We thought we'd maybe publish some things. We'd have some fun. We didn't really intend to stand or get elected. But we were doing all this not very long before the election. There are 17 seats in Froome's Council, and very quickly we got 17 candidates. None of the other parties have 17 candidates. And that's actually mathematically kind of key because, I mean, although they could get majorities, they couldn't take the whole lot. And so you all ran? Yeah, so we put up 17 candidates and 10 of those got in in that first May election. So my, my question about that, which kind of blows my mind, did no one come after you guys for trying to stack the council? That you're trying to flood platform with your agenda? I mean, in a sense, that's what we did. Yes, so no one said anything. It just is what happened. Ten independents got in. We were not taken seriously at all. Partly because of the way that we ran the uh, campaign, which wasn't serious. So we did all kinds of things which weren't serious in some ways. So, for instance, the guy who said he'd make the boards to go outside people's houses said, I'll do them for you, but not if they're going to be rectangular. So he made cartoon shapes. Got it. And then we were at Independence for Froome, which is brilliant because it's if. So, so our signs said things like, if not now, when, but they also said things like biff. And I mean, <laughs> so they were just, uh, we were trying to have fun with this. And did, and did lots of things which had never been done before, which like used social media, you know, which is kind of many of us had um, Facebook accounts anyway, and things, things like that. But none of, none of the other parties had ever bothered to do anything, really. They'd always just been elected. So even right at the last minute at the count, as we walked into the count, the leader of the Liberal Democrats sort of basically patted me on the head and said, well, you know, that's been fun, hasn't it? Now you'll see, now you'll see you know what happens when it gets serious. You know? mm. And a few hours later, we were running through. And then, largely because of Malasha and his confidence, to be honest, he knew how the systems worked better than any of us did. And what tends to happen is the first meeting of every council, of all these 10,000 councils, there is a standard agenda which has been provided by the government, which is then the council adopts. And the first thing is to elect a mayor or a chair, which you need someone to run the meeting. Um, and then the second thing is to elect people to a whole lot of committees. Those committees are sort of predetermined. But actually, it turns out you don't have to have those committees. You can have any committees you like. These are recommendations. They're not rules. And there's a book of rules, which isn't really a book of rules. Within it, there are, sort of, there are some things which you must do, like have an audit, for instance which obviously it's public money that you're raising yes, on. Yes. <clears throat> Most of the rest you don't have to do. So we elected the mayor and then we said, right, we're now going to suspend the council for the next two weeks. So we broke into the agenda, which the clerk had presented and said, right, at this point, we're going to uh, suspend the meeting. The remaining councillors, one burst into tears. It was a moment of high drama. But actually, you know, there's nothing that's on the agenda that really, really matters in many ways. We need a couple of weeks to work out how we're going to run this thing. And what were the tears about? The tears were, 
we knew this is what you were going to do. You're Marxist. This is what we said all along. You're going to take over Froome and run it with a bunch of, of left-wing nutters. You don't know what you're doing. It's like you're going to destroy everything that we've worked for. We upset a lot of people. And retrospectively, I didn't realize how much being in councillors and the way that they did things was how they ran their lives. Yes. So a number of these people were married to each other. You know, they'd been there for years. This was their social life. It was all of their life. And we trampled through it um, fairly brutally. And that was a bit unkind, actually. Now, I love that you say that because a thing that's really occupying my mind at the moment is how we have dialogue intergenerationally about really shifting the system and systems change conversations that how can we have them and be kind, understanding that everything that you've been involved in requires to use your own words or or the words that are on the website that I had connected to you as foundation pillars, radical inclusivity, active listening and trust. We need to move fast because of the ecological collapse that's happening on the planet and we're finding ourselves in this pandemic moment where stimulus packages are on the table across the world for how we get ourselves out of these economic holes that we're in. But actually what you just said, we need to re-look at the whole system, look at the rules differently. Are they actually rules? Do we need those rules? Do those rules work for us? Can we pivot? Can we remake our systems? And that's the remarkable encounter that you've had in your life with this shake-up of the Froome Council and how the ripple effects of that were remarkable change in the community. I'm just happy that you mentioned that it was unkind and you've acknowledged that because I think there are real pieces here of wisdom for those of us who are able to learn from you on how we can do this writ large in ways that everybody feels included and safe Mm. and Mm. inspired even by by what we can do together if we just rethink the rules. The problem is, of course, safety is big for people. The way that they've organised their lives and the way that things have been until now worked for them. And I don't think it's adversarial. I actually think that these are foundational cultural organising principles that we're trying to move around the board and they're so politicised. How do we do it? They, they become adversarial, don't they? Yes. You, you remind me of two things. One is what we were offering to people, one is that we said, this is how we will behave as a group. Um, and central to that is that we will be non-adversarial, that we would be a group that was genuinely of individuals who had their own views and could behave however they wanted to, and there was no party whip, there was none of that. So there was no predetermined agreement amongst us. But... We had a set of of ways of working that we did agree. And absolutely core to that is taking confrontation out of the process. So not taking disagreement out of the process, but taking confrontation so that we wouldn't hold grudges. These ways of working, they're very similar, incidentally, to the ones which the, the Danish Alternative Party have as their core values. There are a number of other parties and groups who have done this. They basically said, this is how we work. And that's about how we'll behave together. And what that means is that you can have people who are politically completely different in the room. 
because we've agreed that what we're focusing on is, in this case, what's best for Froome. And so the fact that Nick and I completely disagree with each other. So Nick was another one of these first counselors, politically way off to the right compared to me. And his wife said early on, um, Peter McVadden and Nick White in one room, this will never work. Because in, in national politics, we're completely different. We'd had some great moments together and a lot of real pleasure and a lot of huge laughs because we didn't discuss national immigration or, you know, some of the other things which we fundamentally disagree on. So we don't have to have that adversarialness. You know, we are both people who live in Froome, whose children go to the same school. A group of people like that have far more in common, you know, than they don't have in common. And if you start off by having a room of your new 17 councillors and you sit them with your Labour there and your, in our case, Conservative there and, you know, or your case, your Liberal, you know, and, and so you've immediately separated them into different parties. So they're bristling with sort of antagonism right from the start. It's a disaster. One of the things that we did thinking of that is that we changed the whole way that the seating of councils worked so that we had the councillors sitting in the room. You have the chair at the front with the person taking the notes and the clerk. And the rest are just seated amongst the public. And so that, again, is sort of about breaking down the power relationship. That, that business of having us agreeing how we'll behave together was the first thing. And then the second key thing is we said, rather than representing you, the people who voted for us, we're going to facilitate a constant conversation with you. This will be participatory democracy. This will be a constant process of involving as many people as possible, particularly where they have expertise. And expertise might be they live in the street that we're talking about, rather than now I'm the mayor, I'll tell you what's happening. Because that is total and utter nonsense. So how did you understand your role as the mayor, because you were the mayor of Froome, voted in. Yeah. So the mayor is just the chair. My role is to make sure that the people in that room have had their say. It's not driving through an agenda, and it's certainly not being a leader um, in the sense that Boris Johnson for us, um, you know, or, or any other sees that role. There's nothing Churchillian about it. I find that really important, this idea. Uh, of course, that your book, Flatpak Democracy, is talking about how you all experimented with what sounds like a highly functional new form of democracy. You were playing with ideas and who championed those ideas and how did you, how did you resource that different awareness and those different set of values? Was that all organised by one person, seeded by many? How how did you come to really approaching this from a new Mm. perspective? Yeah, good question. A lot of it evolved, but right from the beginning, we used um, a professional facilitator. First meeting when we came together as 17 candidates, we brought in someone, someone whose job it is to run meetings, because otherwise, what what you implied would tend to happen, which is that someone would become de facto the leader. Somebody would take a lead. Somebody might say, you know, might even be elected to be the chairperson. That person then tends to take the decisions. Others then sit back. We certainly wanted to see of a much more feminized politics where women are, uh, you know, equally involved. And there's a a lot more about listening and a lot more about feelings and, and emotions get coming in there. 
um, which I don't want to characterize what I mean by, um, by a more feminized politics, but that is part of it. So by using that person, they could divide up the room, they could, you know, they have all sorts of, of techniques to, with, to of, of getting us to work out what we wanted to do. And, and again, to ensure that the shouty men don't take over. Wow. So that was deliberate right from the start. And then we maintained that right the way through. We paid as individuals to rent a, um, rent a building and go away for the weekend to be together, to develop our own relationship, but also to work hard on strategy and so on. And again, we use one or quite often two facilitators during those meetings. Now, I know of no other parish council you know, or council at this level that's ever done anything like that. So we, we know we took this job really seriously. With the aim to what? What had you agreed on? Because there's language around it now, one planet living, a well-being economy. There, there's language around the what of it. But how did you define it then? What year are we talking? So 2011 we were elected. Yeah. And then re-elected in 2015. 2015-17 councillors got in. So prior to the first independent council, there'd been some work done in Froome to develop a... Um, strategy for the future of Froome, because a lot of these market and coastal towns in Britain had really suffered. So there was government money to do some proper, let's talk to the people and see what, how you want to run your lives. So that process had just taken place. And I'd been part of that. I'd chaired that for a while. And within that, the, the green elements of Froome, back to that sustainable Froome, the transition town element, had been very dominant. We'd been very involved in saying we felt that this was a town that should be built in ways that that, that were more sustainable and resilient. So there was this plan that we, as a town council, we said, look, we've just had all this consultation. We're not going to do it again. Let's just adopt as much of that as possible. And then into that, we inserted the, um, the One Planet Living because that became part of that legislation that I mentioned, the Localism Act, enabled you to, to form a local plan. So we did that too. The combination of all these plans came together. So there's an element of luck, but then a number of the other councillors had played key roles in those processes before the council. So, I mean, not every council would have that, but many others that have followed us have taken a similar kind of stance. It turns out that a lot of the green stuff, a lot of the environmental stuff, it's kind of common sense. And if you don't politicise it, I mean, who wants pollution? I mean, why would you not want more bicycling? Why would you not want more allotments and more green areas? The problem comes when that is the manifesto of the Green Party yes. and the Green Party is standing against the Labour Party, let's say, and yes. all the others, you know, yes. and then it becomes this, this area of confrontation again. So many of the towns who have taken on independence, as Froome have, have actually gone on to adopt incredibly environmental, green, resilient strategies because they're what people want not necessarily because they're driven by a green agenda. Oh, there's so many questions I have because you've really lived it and it was timely because your experience of doing this in Froome is our lesson for now. I feel personally like a decentralised, localised economy, a well-being economy, all of these ideas, if we invest where we live and where we love, it makes an enormous amount of sense because it's tangible to us. Our children go to school there. Our elderly will be taken care of where we live and love. It's that idea of being proximate and having tangible connection to our world, especially with globalisation. 
especially mm. with how everything just got beyond us and became ideas that we had no connection to and the purpose and meaning of life got further and further away from all of us. Mm. And there's so much we could say about Froome and so many detailed questions I could ask you. You have a resilience officer. That's the coolest thing ever. You've been working on reintroducing the concept of the commons, which I'm completely passionate about. I'm curious how that commons is being um, reinvigorated all over the world. What does it mean? What does it mean to your community? That's a really beautiful question. And maybe my top question is, how is Froome doing in this extreme situation we all find ourselves in? What is the result of the experiment when it's most needed? Yeah. So the answer is that Froome has done very well. So I feel really Actually, I almost feel proud. I don't do pride very much. <laughs> but, um, I'm not a counsellor anymore. So the, so the last year, I haven't been a counsellor. One of the things that I and, and all of the others said is, we'll do this well for a while, and then we'll stop. And if it's working, there will be others who want to take over. And then we will be able to do other things within the community. And that's worked perfectly. So there are 17 uh, in, in new independents, four of whom had been previously counsellors, independent counsellors, all of the rest are new. And there were loads more people who wanted those posts. So all of that's working well. So what they've done is they have worked entirely to support community organisations to respond to the uh, COVID Harvey crisis. For instance, there's a, an organisation called Fair Froom, um, which has been massively increasing the number of food boxes that have been going out, the collection of food that people have been donating, and then the distribution of that. There have been a series of other um, initiatives around ensuring that people are in touch with each other, that individual sort of clusters of streets are, are looking after each other, that um, drugs are delivered. In this case, the drugs were delivered by people on bicycles, so they were getting uh, exercise, selecting from the pharmacy and taking out. And the role of the council in that has been to let people know the opportunities to share the names of volunteers to collect. There's actually been way too many volunteers in fruit. One of the problems has been that there's People going, look, I volunteered weeks ago and nobody seems to want me, you know. <laughs> wow, what a problem so, to have. Yeah, exactly. So that's been, in my view, pretty perfect. And from the outside, because I had nothing to do with this, what the council could have done is said, you know, right, gold command, we're going to take over now. You know, let, we, we need all these volunteers, you know, blah, 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 turn up, do your stuff. But it hasn't been like that. It's all been about supporting existing organisations ensuring that the organizations like there's one called active and in touch which are always there or have been for years working with, primarily with elderly but other isolated people but really making sure that they're well connected in that they've got enough people but not taking over community initiated and then supported with with money or with transport or whatever it might be by the council where that's needed one of the important things about that is that traditionally at this moment no doubt the mayor but other councillors would be out there too, making sure that their photo is taken, making sure that everybody knows that they're there, writing to the paper and talking about the things that they've done. Because, you know, there's an election coming up. So you need to make sure that your, um, that your profile is high, that your party is seen to have been organising this, that and the other. Because we haven't got any of that. I mean, I don't know what will happen in the next election, but nobody, nobody's doing that at all. It's like, I don't get the feeling that any of them are really thinking about that or particularly care in a way because it doesn't matter. That's not why you're doing it. You're not doing it for a, a political career. This is a voluntary job 
that you're doing for a short while, for four years, eight years, and then you're not doing it anymore and you're doing something else. That's worked really well in Froome. And then now I think comes another really interesting bit because how much of this will be continued or built on? So there's a new network in Froome of community groups. So people who haven't really known each other, who have now got in touch through Facebook or, or WhatsApp or, you know, so the, the key people of those groups have been meeting. So there have been 20, 30 people meeting on Zoom to talk about, share ideas about what they've been doing. And there are already ideas as to things that they might be looking to do and to cross-fertilize. And going back to where we started, for me, this is all politics because the decisions they're making are political. The suggestions they're making are about having a, a network of share shops or places around room where people can be sharing things rather than rather than buying them. You're reintroducing things like let schemes. It's a labor and exchange scheme. They're basically a list of um, people you know being able to exchange through a common currency. Those sorts of ideas are coming up all over the place. And all of this is happening outside of the council. But it means that you can get them involved further down the line. Because we already run as a town, we run a lot of participatory budgeting, which we call people's budgets, where an element like the council would decide we're going to spend £50,000 on public events this year, entertainment events, but then go out to the people to say, so what do you want to do? And then the people vote, and then the council does what the people says. Did um, it work? Participatory democracy work? The people's budgets, yeah, they really work. And I think it's part of um, increasing people's political literacy. I mean, we have this disaster in Britain of a of, um, of Brexit, of us leaving the European Union, almost entirely, in my view, because people were asked to make a decision without any process of understanding how to make that decision. They just got two sets of lies, and then depending on, on which set of lies you chose to believe, you voted one way or the other, and it all went horrendously wrong, in my view. But, um, I mean, others would disagree, obviously. But um, there was no capacity to think things through. And what turns out is that if you, if you give people the right to make important decisions about spending money, they take that seriously, mm-hmm. you know, and they, um, they will spend time thinking through, should we spend it on this? Should we spend it on that? What do we want to do? And, um, it, you know, it works incredibly well. I mean, when we first did it, so I can't remember, there was sort of £40,000 to spend and there was like an ask of 80000 So this isn't going to work. And so people were presenting their ideas and you could see there were a hundred people there with a card and they're kind of going, oh yeah, I like that. Oh yeah, I like that. Oh yeah, I like that. And then they kind of go, oh, hang on a minute. I can't like the next one because I've just spent all the 30,000 already. Mm. Um, you know, and so then they have to do that process of going, okay, what the hell do I do now? Which is really important. And we just hand away our power every four or five years. We hand away our power to a bunch of charlatans who make all the decisions for us. And then we moan about them orchestrated and poked by a press that has another agenda than informing the people. So I think Froome's done well during the pandemic, but now it'll be really, really interesting to see how much of the good things. The streets have got a lot more weeds growing. Are we going to blast them with, um, you know, carcinogenic chemicals? Or are people going to go, actually, I quite like that. There's a, a lovely thing that's been happening where People have been chalking the names of plants on pavements. So instead of seeing that as a weed, you see it as Herb Robert. As you walk down the road, you think, blimey, there's 10 different plants down here Mm. sort of growing in the edge, which would previously have been blotted out with something that kills all the insects too. 
So there's potential, as you said before, there's potential for us to make decisions. And the council, in that sort of way, are already thinking they're not going to cut the grass nearly so much. Because mm. within the parks, there are areas people have said, whoa, you know, I just love these dandelions. I've never seen so many daisies. I didn't know they were daisies. I remember listening to a podcast recently about how Britain used to have so many bugs in the air that you would actually need your windscreen wiper at night with your car and the lights on because of all the bugs, and the bugs have been disappearing. Yeah. About a month ago, we had to go and get my son um, because he was not well. And um, when we came back, for the first time in years, my headlights were covered in bugs. Ah, yes. Did I drive somewhere different? Or even in this short time of a couple of months of less spraying, has that made a difference? I don't know. It must. I feel like there's a restorative urge you know, a a desire for the ecosystems to restore themselves if given time. We have so much to talk about. I have so much to learn from you. You entered this remarkable experiment. You were the mayor. I would just recommend anyone reading this interview or listening to this podcast, you must Google Froome, F-R-O-M-E. Listen, there's a podcast on Upstream about it and Peter's amazing book, Flatpak Democracy, which is a super cool name. And now you're no longer a member of the council and you're um, a part of a new movement and you're working with more sort of um, extension ideas from your encounter there. How has that time in Froome changed you? Well, it's clearly given me confidence and it's made me realise that we did do something interesting. Well, when I was first asked to write Flatback Democracy, my answer was, why would I want to do that? So what have we done? I think one of the things of being a bunch of ordinary people in the sense that none of us had any political aspirations, we were just working people of room, meant that there's a, a, just a modesty within that. I didn't realise that there was a story to tell for quite some time. And it was only quite a long way down the route, having written the book, and then actually it's selling lots of copies, including recently uh, 20 to places in Queensland. What's happened in Queensland? That's really funny. I want to know now what's happening in Queensland. We sell revolutionary packs, which are a bunch of books for not much money. But you don't buy one of those unless you're quite serious. So, I mean, it's definitely changed me in terms of my confidence. And it's taken me into all sorts of really, really interesting conversations. And it's so lovely to have those connections to like-minded people. And it feels so important. So I've had some brilliant conversations and it's taken me into all sorts of places I never thought I'd go. And that's what's taken me into Extinction Rebellion, incidentally. So Extinction Rebellion has three demands, the third of which is for a new politics. That was the one I wasn't expecting. The first two are around tell the truth, and then the second one is about reducing carbon, really radically. But the third one is for a new politics. And as I say, that was the one which I thought, whoa, that's interesting. And it's that bit, that's the bit which I'm working within Extinction Rebellion on, primarily around citizens' assemblies and sortition. So random selection. It's what the Greeks did uh, that worked. And we do it in our, in our trials. We, have, we randomly select individuals who decide whether somebody should spend the rest of their life in prison or not. So the, one of the most important things that we could possibly do, we randomly select from our, from our, um, uh, our population. But we don't do that in other situations. And one of the things that uh, Extinction Rebellion is calling for is for around climate change, having citizens' assemblies, so having people randomly selected who are then properly informed over a long period of time and who then make serious recommendations. 
it's the same sort of principle as we had in Froome of, of using the wisdom within your population to make the decisions for you. I would love it if you're able to distill what are the main lessons from Froome for those of us out there who have what to learn from what you achieved there in the time that you were there? I, I would say don't respect power hmm. or, or disrespect power. What, what is it about power and people in powerful positions where we go into this default mode of sort of like, yes, Your Honour, and you, and you kind of do everything that they, that they want you to do? Let's break that down. I think that that's an interesting conversation. I mean, most people feel profoundly disempowered from childhood. Yeah. To, to be accountable for their own actions, let alone the collective we. And there is a real a great maturity in being able to not as an anarchist tear down the house because I'm not a big fan of anarchy because what replaces it is a power vacuum and then certain people will always walk into a juicy power vacuum. Sure. So that question you ask, I'm compelled by all the time because I think what we need are mature, healthy, responsible adults who've been through things like rites of passage who understand what the we of us is when you were talking at the beginning of our conversation about kindness and having a sort of a sort of compassionate awareness with how we renew our system's design. I think if it's handled poorly, really the wrong parts of ourselves will, will um, show up into those power vacuums. And I think Largely in England and Australia, the way the citizens of those countries have encountered those power structures has been benign and beneficial up until right. a point, right? Yeah. So, so it makes sense. You're disempowered from childhood. Authority is a thing that is needed to control. You walk into a room with a child and try to direct the flow of attention and it requires an enormous amount of self-awareness, compassion, and um, I saw that one of the principles in, in your work at the moment is to refer to nonviolent communication. All of those learned and sophisticated and very nuanced approaches to challenging power. You're right. So it's a big conversation, one which is intergenerational. I just see this intergenerational tension because... The ones who are currently, quote-unquote, in power are the baby boomers who built the infrastructure for the fossil fuel economy. I get that they built an infrastructure that served a cultural norm and to yeah. un unwind it mm -hmm. needs a really good story because our economy has tanked and why the hell would they invest with the stimulus packages that are coming why would they invest in a completely new paradigm, especially if it's politicised? I get that. Well, yeah, especially if it's politicised is right, but um, now is the opportunity to invest in things uh, that will actually environmentally. How can they possibly want to put money back into aeroplanes and, yes. and cruise ships and all of this stuff that, um, that is so damaging? But the thing and about Froome that's so great is what you said is that if, what you can start where you live and where you love, the place where you are and are most invested. There are so many examples in Froome that I love around you buy something in Froome from what's at the share shop or, or many of your yeah. initiatives. You buy something in Froome and the money stays in Froome. 
there's something yeah. really meaningful about that. Rather than going to the big supermarkets you're buying at the local farmer's market, you're sort of turning it's new and it's ancient at the same time and the experiment is worthy because the systems are so broken. And now there are all these things about relationships. I remember after about five years of doing politics, somebody came to me, Peter, I'm really cross with what's going on. And I said, what do you mean, Des? And he said, look, I always go to France in the summer. And this summer, there's things happening every single week in Froome. I can't go to France. I mean, he was only joking. It's like, <laughs> I can't, I can't leave. And I was going, yes, you know, that is what I want. I want a community with, that you cannot leave, in a sense, and you want to stay in. And I think that there's lots of crap that's happened during this pandemic and the lockdown. And obviously for people who, who are in homes that don't function, it's been un, an unmitigated disaster. But there are also, for us, who have countryside around, there's lots of people who've found new walks, who've found new bits yes. around here. Yes. They've never been to places where they've... And because they haven't gone away, they've cancelled their summer holidays, they didn't, you know, Easter didn't happen, da, 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 da. It's like, well, did we actually have to do that anyway? And so the potential to then build on that is so huge because we can't continue to do those things anyway. We can't, in our case, continue to travel to Europe all the time and go on holidays because in terms of energy, we can't. And in terms of climate change, we've been forced into a situation. So now the crucial question is, do we, do we grasp that opportunity or not? Do we stick with it? You know, there's a lot that, um, and I don't know whether it's a Greta quote or just attributed to her of, um, we can't return to normal, normal wasn't working, which I've seen on walls. And that's how it is, I think. And we do need yeah. new models. Yeah, exactly. And Stephen Jenkinson, who writes about elderhood, was talking about how maybe we're the first generation, my generation, whose children should have much less than we had. But that, but less in what sense? I mean, less in a material, less in a flying, less in a... But, then, but what they have to have more of, therefore, is more in relationships with their grandparents, relationships with their neighbours, you know, in understanding nature in lenses that can enable them to look at bugs and really get into them and it's depth not width isn't it or whichever way around it is it's sort of like it's needing to go in deeper rather than have more we cannot continue to have more that was true before the pandemic and it was true before through but i think there's such fantastic opportunities there's a moment now for each country as it comes out of lockdown to be taken or to be lost and so into, into that breadth of opportunity between the stimulus and the response, which is mm -hmm. where we find ourselves, to quote Viktor Frankl, what are you doing? What's your next? My immediate next piece is this weekend to put in some illegal and unofficial bike lanes into the streets of Froome. We want to mark out some of the streets which need to have bike lanes and pedestrians, uh, you know, wider pavements and, and fewer cars. So the plan is to is to put them there, probably in chalk, because it's not a moment to be too provocative. Mm. Um, so in chalk and then photograph them and use them and go, so it's a sort of why not question. So I want to do more things like that. And then to work with this network of new community organisers in Froome. So to be building on that. And then also... There's a, a really brilliant moment towards our next local elections. All over Britain, there's been these mutual aid groups that have been set up, which are groups of people who've been doing work around the pandemic in their communities. Quite a lot of them have found their councils really unhelpful, which from my point of view is a um, sort of ding moment. So that's groups of people. They've come together. They've got to know each other. They've been working together. There are elections next May. 
they had trouble with their council. Those are the people who could be um, getting together in the pub and going, why don't we run this show? So I'm seeing a, a whole mass of potential revolutionaries um, across the towns and villages of Britain who I'd like to talk to. What's your advice to any good, decent 21st century revolutionary? Top three bits of advice. <laughs> I was going to say it's very hackneyed, that sort of like, if not now, when, if not me, who. We have to step up. We have to take back the power. And I don't think we'll do it by taking people on in their own paradigm. Standing for election at a national level with a new party will never work. For me, it has to be about a mass movement of people wherever they are, Byron Bay or, you know, or wherever you are in, in Victoria or, and, 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 you know, at a parish, at a town level, going, actually, this isn't good enough. What you failed to do around fires in Australia, what you're failing to do around climate change, you know, it's not good enough. And, and not doing that through national voting, but by taking power at a local level and then, and then making it happen. And in many places of the world, it's really easy to do that. Because this lowest level is so dysfunctional, actually. It's so much a group of old people who, who don't do very much. But the potential to do more is so great. Your advice to a 21st century revolutionary is to show up now. Yeah, show up and take courage and um, not be, be cowed by, um, by authority, who, whoever that may be. And I know it's easy to say that in a country where... Um, you know, we, we have a fair degree of the rule of law. And in many countries, if you stick your head too far above the parapet, it gets shot off. So, of course, I mean, I absolutely, it's easy for, for me to say that. But I think it's incredibly important that, that we do, especially as adults, because a lot more shit's going to hit the fan very soon. And the pandemic is just a rehearsal for climate change in many countries, including yours, where I dread to think what's about to hit you. And it's ironic that Australia, you know, so much, uh, you know, with a head in the sand in, in relation to climate change, it's going to be so hard hit, um, I think, and not just with fires. So um, taking power and also having fun, actually, will be one of my main things. This doesn't have to be serious. Ensuring that you put fun into it, and that links into not abusing power, so that the people in the front are sharing it, are facilitating it, are making sure that everyone's included. Beautiful. Thank you, Peter, so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. How good was that? Like I said, you can soak up more of Peter's insights on revitalising local democracies in our upcoming Next Economy events with him. There's a conversation and a masterclass happening later in the year. Stay tuned for more on the Small Giants website. Thanks to the teams at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm currently on the lands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations and pay respects to their traditional owners and elders past, present and emerging.